That's connecting. We're connected. I'm going to get some music going here, and we'll get this thing started. Tax the rich, feed the poor, tell there are no rich no more. But you just don't know what to do, do you, Alvin? Well, we do, and that's what we talk about here at the Radio Ranch. Is maybe even, even if we can just get that thing to shift a degree or so on its axis, I believe we'll have been successful. Uh, Roger Sales here with you. It's the Friday edition. I believe Brent will be with us today. And uh, no telling what we'll get into, of course, as there never is on our shows. And uh, we're on the Eurofolk Radio Network. If you're listening live streaming, welcome. If you're listening later on a podcast, we appreciate all of you, especially the people here, taking the time out of your busy day to join us and uh, uh, value this information to that extent. So we appreciate you. Uh, It's the 22nd, the Friday edition here. And uh, we were getting a little conversation in right before before i got a housekeeping thing or two that we need to cover but judy was telling us a story judy from georgia judy so why don't you just start again here and let's go ahead and get all this housekeeping stuff out of the way okay can you hear me now yes very well thank you i'll make sure i unmuted um tuesday i got a phone call in the afternoon from Somebody in uh, Northeast Atlanta um, claiming he was with Verizon Wireless, which is who our cell phones are with, and saying that uh, he had sent an email the day before to this to an email account I haven't accessed in years, claiming he was with Verizon, and it was in regards to a violation of contract with Verizon. Well. The bottom line is, I didn't give him another email address like he wanted. He never used our last name. I don't know. Anyway, he's telling me the violation is excessive use of phone calls to radio programs that start with 641 area code, which is Global Star, and chat platforms. This is the only chat platform I've used. And that if it wasn't dramatically decreased, which he could not define what dramatically was, um, that there would be action taken. And I said, well, uh, there's nothing in the contract that says he kept saying prohibited. These phone calls to the 641 numbers and the chat platforms were prohibited. Says, well, there's nothing in our contract. When you first did your contract, there's a clause. <laughs> there's no clause. And the only contract we have is using their service. Our phones are paid for. So anyways, he, then he called again yesterday. And, and I called Verizon. They do have a person working there by this guy's name. Um, but there's no clause stating that certain numbers are prohibited. Um, and they're investigating on their end. And then I got a call yesterday. I declined the call. I didn't know he had already called my husband's number 
45 minutes before he called me, and my husband had a curt conversation with him, and my, my husband was at work, and he just didn't want to deal with this nonsense anymore, so he hung up on the guy, because there was, anyway, uh, he says, well, turn the phone off, and he also, that's what he told me on that phone call Tuesday, he said, if these calls are not dramatically reduced within seven days, then the phone would be, my phone would be turned off. Okay, hold hold on. All right, I'm going to let you finish. I just want to interrupt for a second. I just got a call, uh, a message from Brent. He says, good internet, no Jitsi. So there's a bunch of us on here, so I don't know what's going on there. Uh, This deal about then. All right, go ahead with your story, and we'll discuss it afterwards. So then Verizon, uh, I talked to somebody in fraud with Verizon also yesterday, and she recommended to also contact the FCC, which I did. And the woman with the FCC put me on hold. She said, there's something been going around the office about 641 numbers. She put me on hold, she comes back, and she said, well, the information that she was getting was that apparently the cell phone companies are trying to justify increasing phone rates for people that call these radio platforms and chat lines. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's my first suge- here's my first suggestion. You're on a cell phone. Yes. Okay. Well, go and load the Jitsi app, and you're going to bypass this six one four number. This is why I always suggest people connect with us digitally. Okay. There's two ways. Load. Well, load. Jitsi is not a six four one number. Oh, it's not. No, it's not. Well, what six four num one six one four numbers do you call? Six four one is the area code for different uh, radio broadcasts with on Global Star, and they just got, happened to have six four one. All right, Paul, is this, is that that's not your deal, is it? Global Star is Paul with us? Is that Paul's? Who? What is Global Star? Oh no 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 no! Uh, Global Star is just. Um some other third-party company. Uh, the Jitsi phone number for dial-in is area code 512. Okay. So they're probably just lumping her into uh, just the the call-in radio show platforms. It might be. It okay, let me, go, said- let me go back to where I was a minute ago, and I want you to continue, Judy. This is why I really advise people to connect with us digitally. Go ahead. Okay, because he said... The phone calls to radio platforms and chat platforms are prohibited, which is baloney. Hold it. They got certain numbers that are prohibited from you calling when you get your cell phone uh, uh, account? That's absolutely absurd. Yep, according to him. Go ahead. Ken, was that you? Plan unlimited? Yes. Then I would check the fine print about the unlimited and ask them next time they hassle you. Um, So you're uh, promoting false advertising on unlimited talk and text then. 
Well, that's assuming that he's legitimately with the right. Right. That's another question in the background. Right. Go ahead. Somebody, so it, it I would ask them their employees. Right, hold on. Both of you are talking at one time. Hold, hold on. Number. Both of you are talking yeah. at one time. Hold on. Okay. Yeah. Ken, go ahead. Be using. Yeah, ask them their name and their employee number and somebody that you can call back and talk to um, and then, you know, verify that number before calling it um, with Verizon. You know, call their known uh, access number for customer support and verify who they are no. because this no. could be a fishing expedition. It could be. Yeah, I've, I've been fishing, I've been having somebody they're trying to I've been having somebody trying to fish me through emails on my email account too. So let me tell you what well, I did. He, I hit the uh, I hit the uh, return reply and then or hold the mouse over their email and their email comes up. And for mail.com I'm getting fished by somebody with a gmail.com account. Okay. So I don't think mail.com is going to be going and giving me all these messages from a Gmail account. So that's very prevalent out yeah. there these days. So be careful. Well, I had I had told him, you know, if there's a violation, then send us correspondence. Well, I don't have that, that ability. Okay. Well, well, hold it. You don't have yeah. that ability, so, my ass. Exactly. So either, hold on, either he's fishing because he did ask if I had another email he could forward his supposed email to the um to i said no or if what the fc is telling me is correct that the cell phone companies accumulatively are trying to raise rates and or censor people calling Pro- probably, both. Platforms probably, chat, bo- yeah. probably both probably both this is a sneaky backdoor way of, of put, trying to put fear into the customers to comply because our contract has no clause to that effect. Um, Judy, did you call Verizon or did you, I thought you said you called the FCC, yeah. right? Called Verizon three times. You called. She called. Oh. Oh, I hold it. You're clipping a little bit. This is another reason to connect digitally. Well, uh, well, who did you call? Yes, I. I called Verizon after each phone call, right? And I've talked to them three different times. Did you go to the fraud department? And did they you go do to the have an employee? But did you go to yes. the? F- okay, good. Now go ahead. They do have an employee. Yes, but we don't know if it's that person. I just thought it was kind of strange. I I did not expect this person to call again. So I'm thinking, what nerve does he has? to call and then call my husband um and my husband said the same thing send us the letter he says, well i don't have that ability he will send me no, that that's that's crap your- that's crap right yeah there. he listen that i don't have hold on have let her finish account. go ahead please my husband my husband said i've had this email with verizon and my account with verizon before i've had this wife you don't have access to it so now, okay, I, I think somebody's screwing with you. Now, who all's trying to say something? I am. It's Mer. When I when I first moved out here, I was given a, a reassigned number, and the people had bad credit. And there were others with I have a very common name, and they were trying to track me down for some others' debt. And so that got me into keeping the phone unplugged. But when I was advised when I called about some 
I think a lawyer's office was involved, and the woman said, just tell them wrong number and hang up. And you'd be surprised how, yeah. how that gets to them. They just don't bother. You do that every time, yeah. and they, they'll quit calling. Well, I've hung up on him. Um, I mean, I blocked him. I, I never hung up on him. I blocked him. Okay. So, but and just be polite and say wrong number. You know, just be polite and say wrong number. Yep, and, that's, yep. that's a good idea. But I just thought that was really bizarre and wanted to let you guys know about it. It is. But you got to admit, we're in bizarro world. Well, especially with a few weeks ago with platform, apparently my whole number shows up when I call in. Oh, yeah, they got caller ID on all that stuff because we used to have it at Truth Frequency. I busted a Jew on there one day. It was a Friday because I had Brent on, and uh, it was after the election with Trump, I guess. And uh, this this uh, caller comes in, and I see his name up there on the list, and it's Bloomberg or something. And so he, he answered, hi, don't you think it's time we start having a, had a woman president? This is when the Hillary thing happened, right? And so I see his name there, and I know he's calling in from South Florida. And, uh, and so I, I asked, I said, so-and-so, is this your phone? And he knew right then he was busted, see? But uh, we, we catch these creeps. We don't have that here, obviously, but uh, that was a nice feature, and it did. I, I laid into that piece of crap. So, well, a lot of this stuff is also AI driven. So, even the words you speak on the phone with these people, uh, the AI is listening. And um, if you go ahead and block them like you did, and then you get another phone call from a different number regarding the same stuff then you know for sure that it's bogus. Um, and I get 20 to 30 of those every day. And I hate even saying anything about it because then the AI pounds me even harder. And I'll get the exact same message from multiple different numbers all over the country. And um, so it's all robocall, AI-driven stuff in order, and you'd be surprised how many times I get ready to call here or something like that, and all of a sudden I start getting these barrage of calls trying to interrupt my call. Um, so it's it's just uh, AI assault on your uh, freedom to speak. So anyhow, y'all, I'm going to go, over, uh, I'm, I'm going to let y'all talk. I'm going to be listening, but I got to go over and communicate with Brent for a second and see if we can get him on. So you guys continue. Uh, Roger, Brent's on. Oh, okay. He just, he just said he's on. Oh, okay. Good, Brent. Glad to have you. I was going to get you. This maybe. Okay. Thank you, Bob. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll see if we can get Brent to load Jitsi and he won't have to, I don't know how he's connecting. I think it's through a link. Welcome, Brent. Um, Hi, Roger. Hey, man. Um, we're just getting some housekeeping out of the way, and Judy was telling us a story about some uh, telephone harassment from uh, a supposed Verizon employee. Uh, Judy, did you have anything else? Anybody got anything more to add to that? I've got one quick comment. Okay, go ahead, Paul. Um, I, I used to get robocalls all the time, all day. And what I did, because I have multiple phones was I just let the uh, the calling plan on the phone that was the most frequent offender expire for seven days. 
And then when I renewed it, there were no more robocalls. They called the dead number. They took me right out of their database. It was that fast and that easy. I don't know how many people can do that, but it worked for me. Okay. Your poor little old Judy with all these problems and complications down there in mid-Georgia. And she has to get harassed with this crap. <laughs> I'm sorry, Judy. Um, we had a, a bit of discussion this week on uh, IRS forms. Okay. And um, a W4T and, and all these things. I'd never a BEN and all this stuff I'd never heard of. Okay. You got to understand, I washed my hands of these thugs, thieving bastards 25 years ago, and I don't go checking out their forms. I haven't had a job in over 25 years, so I haven't had to fill any of that stuff out, and my familiarity has lapsed a bit here. But somebody wrote me an email about this W4T. Okay, so we've had a little discussion on it. I've had a chance to think about it, and I got a subsequent email that shed some light on it. Um, a guy wrote in and said the W4T has no OMB number. Okay, now OMB numbers, and I th- this is where my knowledge lapses. Brent, maybe you can help me here. Would a W4T uh, withholding do with all withholding and IRS forms have OMB numbers on them? Yes. Okay, so so they're they're classified as an information gathering request. No question. Okay. Then uh, the W4T does not have an OMB number. It is something that somebody has conjured up and made to look official and is not official. So my red flag says don't use that. Okay. Now, these are the little inconsistencies and nuances you really got to be aware of. So then I got a subsequent email and said that W4T is over on Josh Wallbuilder's SEDM Fam Guardian uh sites now josh is a good friend we've known each other for years uh we don't speak often but we communicate and uh so i shot him a message this morning and said can you tell me i got word this is on your site can you tell me about it and he said we advise nobody use that y'all hear that i'm gonna say it again we advise nobody use the w4t and he suggested the w8 said we suggest people use the w8 now that comes from somebody that's immersed into this stuff far far more than i am okay so uh, my my job's to get you out of this you know we can figure out the rest as you go forward getting out of it's the most important thing to me uh so anyway i just want to make that public announcement do not use that w4t and the subsequent uh and, and any any form that you do look at with submitting these people, make sure it has an OMB number on it. Okay? I don't, we don't want anybody to get in trouble because of forms after you've gotten free. All right? So I wanted to be sure and add that. Do not use that W-4T. It's not an official IRS form. And it may get you in trouble. Don't know that it will, but it may, and there's no sense taking that chance. Okay? So that's uh that's the house cleaning I had. Welcome, Brent. You finally made it on. Yeah, Roger. I have had some experience with those OMB numbers, but um going down deeper, I don't know why this fellow said don't use that other form. Use the use the one that has the OMB number. 
sure he's got his reasons. I'd be interested to know what they are. But well, I invited him to come on the show and discuss it with it, and he didn't answer me back. He's not too much of a radio guy. He's a written guy. That's why he's got those those two sites as absolutely chock full of stuff as he does. By the way, for those of you that don't know, Josh is a very, very, very big Christian guy, and uh, his uh, two sites, he's got two. One is Fam Guardian, like family, fam, F-A-M, guardian.org, I believe. And the other one is SEDM, Southern Education Defense Ministry or something is what it stands for, SEDM.org. You can go over there and peruse to your little heart's content. Well, the OMB number is a result of Congress's legislation. From Watergate. Pardon? From Watergate. Well, well, it's... uh, it's uh, fundamentally the Paperwork Reduction Act. Correct. Yeah. And the idea behind it is that there are so many forms that the IRS uh, has promulgated that it's insane, and not to mention the rest of government. But the act was targeted to the IRS above all else because, of course, congressmen, uh, want to get reelected. So what they do when it comes to legislation is put forth and promote legislation that they think will help them get reelected and make them popular. Well, people are sick of all the forms, and so they thought the Paperwork Reduction Act would make them popular. It is said, well, this was 25 years ago, I used to say it in public, that if you took all of the forms that the IRS issued each year, and laid them end to end, they would reach to the around the world three times. Jeez. That's uh, 8,000 miles, 8, miles at the circumference of the equator where you live, approximately. Now, that is, of course, if you accept the world, the world is a spherical object. Oh, but in, even if you don't, it's 8,000 miles times three. That's 24,000. I remember my multiplication tables. Up through 12 times 12, I'm no slouch on that part. The rest of it got me, but I could get that. But that would be 24,000 miles. And then somebody said to me, no, no, Brent. He said, if you took all the forms the IRS issued each year and laid them end to end, it would be better just to leave them there. I said, well, yeah, that would be better than measuring it even. So um, that's why they passed the Paperwork Reduction Act. I've litigated the Paperwork Reduction Act. Oh, you have? Read, read the cases on it to try to do that, and I discovered that the Paperwork Reduction Act, what it says is that uh, at the top of every, in one of the corners, I forget which one, uh, or wherever it is on the form, every piece of paper upon which the government requests information be returned to them, it's always under penalties of perjury, of course, but every piece of paper has to have, by law, an OMB number. And um, that, stands uh, for, that stands for Office and Management and Budget, by the way. Yeah, just more of this stupid acronym like ATF, FBI, all that baloney. Well, at any rate, uh, you got to have that on there, and it's got to be updated according to what they say is updated. If you get a form that the IRS issues or the, any government agency from the general government in Washington, D.C., and it doesn't have that updated number on it, 
then the legislation says that the federal government cannot prosecute you uh, using information on that form. For instance, when you sign those forms, of course, it's always under penalty of perjury. And let's say they come after you for putting a, a materially false fact on there, a false fact, which, of course, is no fact at all. And it's material. And that's what they prosecute people on, of course, for uh, tax returns often. That's false tax return, they say, and that carries uh, up to three years in prison or whatever. So they prosecute you. Well, if you bring that up, say, wait a minute, this form that I filed, the IRS, I got this at the IRS office or off their website, and the OMB number there on the form is not updated, then the law says they can't prosecute you. End of case. Indictment dismissed. That's what that says. So I looked into it, and I discovered there were cases where people, for instance, in Nevada had filed uh, requests or information returns concerning mining claims, mining claims on federal land. And, of course, it had an OMB number on it, and they prosecuted them for uh, filing uh, an information return about the mining claim. The feds prosecutor tried to send them to prison. And they said, wait a minute, this OMB number here has not been updated for 20 years. You can't prosecute me. That's what the legislation says. And that went to the appellate court, and they threw it out. That really happened. And that's happened uh, other, um, in other cases of information returns to the federal government. But it's all different. It's all different when it comes to federal tax forms. They will, the federal courts will find a way. The appellate courts are creative beyond imagination when it comes to justifying why we can't dismiss this case for violation of the Paperwork Reduction Act. In other words, an updated failure to have an updated OMB number. I saw that happen. And uh, I, it was, uh, well, the appellate courts. They put those fellas in those positions, so they uh, they want people smart enough and more inclined enough and smart enough and devious enough and all to justify the tax system, and that's what that appellate court's all about at that level. So the bottom line to sum up the Paperwork Reduction Act, out of date OMB numbers on information returns, the law calls any piece of paper you sign uh, that you put information on that goes to the government, whether the state government or the general government in Washington, D.C., that's called an information return. It it's, happens a lot. All, uh, when it comes to the general government in Washington, D.C., the Paperwork Reduction Act applies. But don't think, don't count on it applying if your case is a tax case. Now, that's why I say... I don't know the purpose of what your friend said, Roger, but why would he say, uh, make sure it's got the right OMB? No, no, he, he didn't say that. That was my ad. He just said, oh, use, okay. use a W-8. I want to tell you a funny story, though, about what we do here. Uh, you know, my teachings here over the last 11 and a half years have caused some knee-jerk reactions up there at the State Department. I don't know if you know this, Brent. Uh, there's two changes they've made on the passport application. Probably hadn't been changed in no telling when. 
okay and both of them were to cover their ass on what we're teaching here so that's why i say they're very conscious of this man you don't get the state department changing their no how many information gathering requests do you think the state department sends out the state department deals with foreign countries they don't deal with domestic except for passports okay so this is their main omb information gathering request from the state department is the passport application and uh the first thing they did brent was they covered their ass under the oath they added to the oath on the passport application and underneath the oath this was i don't know seven or eight years ago they reacted fairly quickly um the oath is very very ambiguous and it's not it's not total full disclosure because they only put two of the three political statuses on there they say i'm under penalty of perjury i'm a citizen of the united states or a non-citizen national that's american samoans so they left out national in the oath and they substituted non-citizen national okay and the oath reads i swear under penalty of perjury i'm a citizen of the united states or a non-citizen national and have not since acquiring united states citizenship or u.s nationality uh violated any of the acts and conditions listed on page so and so in the instructions and then in the oath now there's a parenthesis and says unless explanatory statement is attached again i swear under penalty of perjury the foregoing is true and correct now that used to be the entirety of it okay well first of all why do they say explanatory attach an explanatory statement if you've been boinking little boys or girls in bangkok or above that there's two instances with two of the three political statuses and there ain't no kind of including enclose a statement with that it's just left hanging so when i caught them slaving here they went in and they changed and now under the oath on the passport applications they've added four check boxes underneath it okay and i don't remember what the first three are but i know what the last one is notice they put it last by the way you know there's an old sales technique of if you're talking with a prospect you try and throw a bunch of little yes questions in and get him in the habit of saying yes and then you throw him the bone okay and that's what they're doing here all right so there's three questions above it and the fourth one is i've read and understand the warning box on page so and so of the instructions now that's your get out of jail card free free card but it's over in the instructions they don't reference it in the oath to tell you an explanatory statement so they've added that to cover their slave and asses okay that's what's going on now the other one the other one okay go ahead go ahead well i was just gonna say i'm gonna give you the other example and we can discuss it okay so I'm down there in Argentina, and I'm real new at get putting all this together, and it's after the accident and all that stuff. And I'm on the phone with – I'm reading the passport thing through the instructions. I got a couple of old copies here and uh, that I got with me, you know, 15 years ago before I left the U.S. I brought them with me, you know, renewal and, and original. And so I'm reading through there, and there's a section in the instructions that says Paperwork Reduction Act. Have you ever read this stuff, bro? Yep. Okay, so there's a section in there that says Paperwork Reduction Act, and it goes in there. It says our forms have to have an OMB number and, and all this stuff. They give you a little uh, a little precursor info. And then the statement was often this is difficult to do because our citizenship laws are very complex. It's, it actually said that in there. They've taken it out, okay? And so I called Glenn, and I said, listen to this. And, he, and I read it to him, and he goes, 
I say, I'll say they're complex. They send you to jail for 15 years just for trying to teach them. <laughs> yeah. They're not complex. They just want them to be complex and muddy. Well, they, well they've hidden them. They've, they create, and you understand what's really going on here, is we think we're under one political status, erroneously under the 14th Amendment, okay? And all of you that have talked to people understand what I'm talking about. So the perception is there's only one. Well, we know there's two, the original state citizen and the 14th Amendment, and then they created a third political status, non-citizen national American Samoans. So there's three political statuses in our country running around, okay? But I just thought it was interesting, and this coming up about OMB numbers today in this discussion, those two specific examples dealing with state, and if you guys don't think they're aware of what's going on here, you're wrong, because this happened about eight years ago, okay? So I, I, I use that. To, have you ever heard in eight years anything from the federal government talking about U.S. nationals, trying to d- dirty it, trying to slur it, trying to drag it through the gutter? Anybody seen any of that? One time, any one, any one time. No, you haven't. And that's why I'm telling you they're scared as hell of this. Well, um, I still say it's simple. You're either a citizen or a national or you're not. But they like to muddy the water so they can say it means whatever they want it to mean. That's the MO of, of government. Of course, of course. the board. But, um, Shucks. Oh, I was going to talk about somebody said a while ago, Roger, a note came up in the chat. Why are we talking about OMB numbers? And the, the answer to that question is because I want to, that's why. And if anybody has any questions about that, we usually talk about what Roger and I want to talk about. Matter of fact, pretty much often we do. I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm going to address whoever put that in there. We're talking about it because some information was brought to us earlier that brought the topic up in the week. That's really important because I don't want any of you getting into any damn trouble because of something you've done subsequent to what you've done. Correct. That's why. That's just good. Yeah. Um, but, um, this information return business is important. Um, it's best to not talk to the government. That means talk to anybody that works for the government, talk to anybody that is working in collusion with somebody that works for the government or somebody that is, um, um, well, it would come down to school teachers, firemen, anybody gets a government paycheck or is working in collusion with the government because to give a false information of any kind to them orally or on a piece of paper is a felony. And it's been a felony to do that for centuries. Nothing new. It's part of our common law tradition. So that's why we have in our common law tradition also the right to remain silent. That's why we do that. Because we know uh, that we should know anyway that it's a felony. So if you don't want to talk, don't talk. And uh, if you do decide to talk and you think you need to, uh, yeah, see, what? well, I just saw another another comment from that same fella it pops up and then I lose it. His name is, uh, I forget how to find it. Oh, here it is, Roger. I need to look real quick. Oh, Mer- Merka Max, MX. 
what are we looking to learn about it so we can understand it? It was a question. Okay. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I think, Mirka, you missed the first part of the show where we were discussing the background of the Paperwork Reduction Act and where these OMB numbers come from and the fact that they've got to be a legitimate number on every document that any agency sends out called an information gathering request where they're asking information returned from the public. They've got to have an OMB number. Brent, they have, you know, they've got these categorized over at uh, OMB. Have you ever seen, and I wish I could remember it, and I'm going to tell you out front that I can't, okay? Has anybody ever seen the description of a 1040 form from the OMB? Anybody ever remember seeing that? It, it is the weirdest weirdest definition of a form you've ever read and it talks about recapture property i don't don't remember the whole phrase it's not just that phrase but it's a whole little sentence about something 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 recapture property okay so that's their internal definition of the office of management and budget of a 1040 form so all this stuff and the intricacies of how the federal government works is critical for us to understand if you don't understand it, you're going to step in the soup. So that's why we're going over it. Mm-hmm. Well, a real case here, even more fundamental than the OMB numbers, is just don't, whatever you do, don't ever tell an untruth to a government employee. Don't lie. That includes, that includes bankers. But according to the legislation of Congress now, bankers are in that category. Why? Because, you know, people say the Federal Reserve Bank is neither federal nor is a reserve. That's a misleading joke. The Federal Reserve Bank controls the federal government. It's a yep. private bank. It is the powers that be, to use William Tyndale's uh, well-coined phrase. Whoever is the most powerful party is the government. Depends on who they are. You say, well, that's the government. No, no. Who's the most powerful party here? That's the government for purposes of whatever you're dealing with. Could be the person you're litigating against. Could be the bank. But if you lie to a bank or even communicate orally to a banker, any untruth with the thought in mind of gaining a benefit from the bank, that's a felony. It's a nasty law. It's it's a lawless law. It shouldn't be a law, but it'll send people to prison. And if you ever get... Uh, investigated, the first thing the feds will do is go to every bank that you've banked in for the last 20 years at least and subpoena every slip of paper, every record they can to try to find something that is unproved. Proof that is uh, uh, proved, it could be they could prove to be true or convince a jury is not true, and that'll be another felony they'll attach to the charge. If you, well, put it this way let's say you go buy a firearm and they say you got to fill out this form. You know, the ATF or whoever it is. So you fill out the form. And it says on there, have you ever smoked pot? Or do you use pot now? Or whatever it says. I forget how it says it. And you say no, because you want to get that that, ni- that 1911 45 caliber Colt. So you get it. And you buy other firearms. 20 years pass. I saw a case. I know a fellow this happened to. He went to federal prison for five years. He checked. He was a firearms collector. He checked on there. No, I don't smoke pot. So he's driving down the road. True story. Driving down Interstate 70. And he gets pulled over for a taillight being out. At night, cop walks up to the car, state policeman, 
Uh, he spools down his window and he looks at him and says, uh, yeah, I just noticed your tail lights out. I'm, I'm, I might give you a warning ticket, whatever he said. And the lights on, he's trying to get his driver's license out. So the lights on, he turned the dome light on to, and, uh, in the ashtray, the, was some ashes and a, and a joint, a roach, a roach. That's what they call ones that have been smoked. And, uh, the policeman said, do you smoke marijuana? And he said, yeah, I do. I've been doing it since I was a teenager. You know, he didn't lie to him. Said, yeah, I smoked marijuana and it wasn't actionable where he was. Apparently he thought it wasn't, it wasn't, they didn't charge him with it. But a few months later, he gets a knock on the door from the ATF. They went back and looked at all the records. This state cop turned turned the information into the ATF. That's the way it works, boys and girls. And uh, it just kept escalating. And pretty soon, then he see had submitted an information return to the general government in Washington D.C., namely the ATF, that had a material false statement on it. And he went to federal prison for five years, and that's the way that works. So don't don't uh, say things that aren't true. What, what what do I tell you guys on this passport application? Whatever you do, don't lie. Brent, no. have you heard that story? That this came out eleven years ago, about when I first got started on this, and it was a retired army guy in Florida who had been in in jail for four or five months already. And he was as a last ditch riding the Florida senator to try and see if he could get him out, which he did, I think, subsequently. This guy's retired army. He'd served down at uh, Guantanamo, okay? And the story was years earlier, y'all listen to this real closely, okay? Years earlier, he had submitted a passport application that was unsigned. So years later, he, I don't know how he did it, because if it's an initial passport application, it's got to be signed in front of an administrating official, a judge or somebody at the post office. Got to. They won't submit it otherwise. Okay? So I don't know how. All the, the background story, I don't know. I just know the story here. So he goes to apply for a passport again. And on there, there's a checkbox, have you ever applied for a passport before? And he checks no. And they got him for passport fraud, and he had to write the senator of Florida to get him out of jail. And he's fortunate he got out. Okay. So don't lie to these people. But even more than that, Roger, don't talk to them unless you have to, and do not submit information returns unless it's absolutely necessary and you have no other option. I agree. Now, let's discuss a case that John and them used to bring up. I bet you're familiar with it, and now now the damn style of it escapes me. I had it. Um, uh, Merit versus uh, federal crop insurance. Are you familiar with that case? It was in the 40s. Yeah. What, 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 what was it about? It was about a guy that had something to do with federal crop insurance. Oh, yeah, federal crop insurance. I'm familiar with that, but and, no, I'm not familiar with Well, they came, they came to the door, and he – I don't remember the uh, the background of it totally, but he, I, he didn't ask them for their identification and who they were and to prove their position, and it came out in that case, this is your duty to find out who you're talking to. 
you yep. got to quiz them to make sure they're yeah. the right people. Like with Judy here that was talking at the first show, you got to go confront them, and that's your duty. And that comes out of an eight, eight, 1940s case, and I think it's called Merit versus Federal Crop Insurance. Okay. No, I'm glad you brought that up, Roger. And that brings up another point, another case in point really happened. I remember this Galut's name, but he's very famous, but I'm not interested in his business, so I don't know. But I do know that he was the producer or the director, probably the director of the series of movies called um, uh, Die Hard. Die Hard. Somebody will know who that is. Well, he had a... Bruce Willis? Bruce Willis? Bruce Willis. Well, maybe it was. I don't know, but you have to look it up. But he was he was uh, one of the producer, the director, one of the big shots. And uh, he had a fancy place, of course, bought out in the middle of nowhere, so he'd get away up in uh, central, north central Wyoming. And late, and he was in a, a civil case with a fella that was pretty pretty hot and heated. He was in court, and he got a call on the telephone about midnight one night. And he had uh, hired a private investigator in this civil case. That's key to this story. And he got a call in the middle of the night about midnight. And he was late. He didn't know. He answered the phone. And the fellow on the other end of the phone said, did you hire so-and-so as a private investigator? And, of course, it being a private matter, and, of course, uh, being a private investigator and him wanting to keep it private and, he, he said to this fellow on the other end of the phone, no, I didn't hire him. Well, the fellow on the other end was a FBI agent. The FBI agent hung up the phone, and then the FBI agent and the rest of the FBI sought an indictment against him for lying to a federal officer. Right. And it stuck. And that goes along with what you said, Roger. That's why the Bible says, be quick to hear and slow to speak. It's not that the FBI is right in doing that. They're wrong in doing that. They should identify themselves, knock and announce, and all those things that go with what they do and warrants and when they call you on the phone and seek information. But that's not reality in the world, and that's why the Bible says, be quick to hear and slow to speak. You just don't talk to anybody. You don't know who they are. Who was but, the gal they sent to prison? The cook. Who was the cooking? What? Who was the cooking gal that they sent to prison for a couple of years for lying to FBI agents? Martha Stewart. In other words, they can lie to you, but you can't lie to them. Yeah, now that, Roger, there's no sense crying over it. That is the fact of the matter. But again, it's always been that way. You know, people take these instruction sheets you were talking about, these IRS instruction sheet sheets, and rely on them. You do that at your peril because it doesn't make any difference what those sheets say. If a court says it's not right what you did, you're not going to be able to argue, well, the instruction sheet said this. See, that that doesn't count. And that's why when you call the IRS and you'll go to the courthouse, for example, they'll often say if they don't want to talk to you, well, I can't give legal advice. Right. Well, as a matter of law, even if they did give it, you couldn't rely on it. It's up to you. That's right. It's tough. That's why you don't talk. That's why we have the right to remain silent. That's why we should use it often and remain silent. Yep. That's Turn the your ringer off. We have. Mer- Turn your ringer off on your phone at night. Well, that's a good idea. Well, what did um, she say? She said, "Turn your ringer on your phone off. Turn your phone off at night." Yeah, that's good. Yeah, good advice. Roger, if yeah. I may. Yeah. Bob. Hey, Ken. Oh, it's Bob. Bob. 
Hey, Bob. Yes. I've been working with... Yeah, Matt. by the way, you're sounding might, mighty nice and clear this morning. And that advice about um, right to remain silent worked really, really well. Um, had a huge victory, in my opinion, yesterday. I mean, I went to court on my court cases. Good. The six felony charges I had. Okay. And they, they slipped me an offer. It says plea offer for Rob. They got Bob in parentheses, you know, and then my last name. And they just want me to plead guilty yep. to a third, you know. Yeah, that's, that's called putting a scalp on your belt. What? That's called yeah. putting a scalp on your belt as the prosecutor. Putting a scalp, yeah. Yeah. Because then I have no recourse. Well, you're going to plead. They want you to plead guilty to some charge, right? And they'll throw the other ones out. Well, they got a conviction. They got a scalp. Right. That's the way they work. You know how many charges? You know, when they went up against John and Glenn, none of them had to do with tax stuff. Do you know how many charges they threw at Glenn Ambort? Just take a wild-ass guess. I'm waiting. 90. Nine zero charges, and none of them had to do with taxes. This is the way then, these guys uh, work. They come and throw a whole wall at you, and they intimidate yeah. you, and they go, okay, we'll get rid of the wall, but you got to come over here and jump this little hurdle, okay? Then they get a conviction, and that's what, all that counts to them because that I includes maybe getting a career appointment. And, but in uh, Bob's case, he got a misdemeanor offer, which was good. Oh, good, Bob. Uh, so it gets all, all the felonies are gone. And, good. Uh, that's a good deal and not bad not a bad deal at all okay but um let me can i add something here i got bob is of yeah. course a longtime listener he's going through a personal transition he got in a little bit of problems here and he wrote me an email and he said what can i do and i said i su suggest you reach out to brent brent obviously you told me you guys were talking and yesterday you look it appears you had a victory so congratulations yeah, now, Bob, just don't go out and celebrate. Yeah, please, Bob. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't, and you know, I didn't, and I knew. I just know in my mind these these troubles and trials and tribulations are going to come up. You're going to get stressed. You're going to want to drink. So I'm ready for it. And on the flip side, I know the victories and the good time. You know, the good things are going to come. So don't use that as an excuse excuse to go celebrate and i didn't you i have four witnesses they were all drinking and i was drinking coffee and water good and for I'm you happy. i for the audience I may not know this i i have a family association with alcoholism my father was an aa for 17 years and uh literally when he got sober he became the father i never had and uh it's just a wonderful thing to see people that have gotten caught up in that uh, bob used to call in drunk to the show and we'd chastise you you know nine o'clock in the morning you're already drunk out there in colorado you know and uh i had to get get a little bit tough with you a couple of times i'm just not going to have that on here you know and uh so i'm really proud of you bob congratulations Get that chip. Are you going to AA, Bob? I go to it's called Springs Recovery Center. I have a good friend who I met him on the poker table, and he's uh, works in a hospital. And they he watches me. Everybody in town says 
He told everybody, if you see Bob take one drink, you call me, and I'm going to beat him up and throw him back to the <laughs> <laughs> Well, fantastic. And I know, listen, I know, I know, because I've lived this, what a life-changing event that decision is when you hit bottom. And the only way an alcoholic's going to change is when he hits bottom. Okay, and Bob did. He's made the decision. He straightened himself out. Congratulations, man! And every day of sobriety, I praise you. Okay. Thank you guys all. I appreciate it. I can feel the love. I feel so humble. Like God, you know, the universe just brought all these different things together, and it all worked out. And I'm really humbled by the whole experience. Well, let me tell you what they go when you go into it there's different types of aa meetings there's open meetings and closed meetings and the closed meetings are only for alcoholics brent do you know any of this stuff you know the background on aa very much i uh, read it years ago well it's a, fundamentally understand it's it. an incredible organization it changes people's lives okay i mean i've experienced it all right and so when they get in i never was in a closed aa meeting because i'm not an alcoholic but my father would tell me you know and the very first thing in a closed aa meeting when they get together bob will verify this is they all say alcohol is cunning baffling and powerful boy is that descriptive right there yeah well uh there used to be a liquor store in that little town where i went to high school and it said on the window spirits right and that's that's an apt description that's why the bible says be not drunk with wine but on the by by contrast be ye filled with the spirit and uh, how do you get drunk with wine? Well, you pop the cork and pour it down your guzzle. Well, how do you get filled with the Spirit? You get filled with the Spirit by taking in what the Spirit said. That's how you do it. There's no mystery to it. What does that mean? That means constant interaction with what God said, and we have the clear record of it in that book we call the Bible. There is no myst- mystic, mystic element to Christianity. It is concrete it is physical and it is the spirit of god in a concrete way and what is concrete about the spirit of god is what he said and god doesn't do anything but what he does it by the power of what he has said period there is no extra biblical revelation no prophets from god that we list we should listen to no they're all hucksters and liars and buffoons there's one sure word says peter the apostle one and it's in that book. And he said, Peter said he was the one that was with Jesus Christ on the Mount of all, Mount, on the Mount, they call it, when he pulled back the veil of his mere flesh and revealed his deity to the three insiders of the 12 man jury. And uh, a voice came out of heaven, according to Peter the Apostle and according to the Gospels. And Peter started jabbering his mouth when Jesus Christ did that. It scared him. It confused him. So what did Peter always do in the Bible when he got scared and confused? He started talking. Oh, he said, this is wonderful. We can have three booths here, one for Moses, one for Jesus. And, and the voice came out of heaven, heaven, and I'm paraphrasing, but not much. It said, shut up. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. So in the second epistle, Peter says, uh, Peter writing later said, I heard a voice out of heaven. 
And he did. And it was the voice of God. And he said, it's the voice of God. However, he said, there is a more sure word. What is the more sure word? And he was trying to stress. This is his, by the way, Second Peter is his dying declaration. Dying. He knew he was going to die. And he writes this epistle. And he encourages God's people to go to the book, go to the book, go to the book. Don't wait for a voice out of heaven. When I say dying declaration, I mean it's a matter of evidentiary rule, even in our common law tradition, that if a man believes he's, his death is imminent, then what he said is admissible as evidence. Right. It's death. an exception to the hearsay rule. Deathbed you know, testimony. Man, deathbed testimony. Yeah, deathbed testimony. And I had an opportunity to use that once, and uh, I thought that the death wasn't imminent enough. The fella did die. I wasn't a fella. It was a gal. She did die. Something she was said of it. She had said, I was trying to get into evidence, but I went and looked at the cases and I thought, well, she knew she was going to die, but I think the doctor gave her six months or something. And, uh, or a year. I don't remember what it was. It was a long time. And I said, that's not a dying declaration unless death is imminent. And so I didn't, I couldn't get that statement in. I tried, tried every way I could. I couldn't get it in. At the end of the trial, then the judge told me later, he said, you know, you could have used a dying declaration. Now, the judge may have been lying. <laughs> he, he was trying to communicate to me, yeah, I'd have done that. I'd have let it in on that. But I don't know that he would have. And, of course, it could have been appealed, too, and then I might have lost. Well, what, what I did learn from it was you, ask, you have not because you asked not. I should have done it anyway. If, they, if the other side objected, then, well, it is work but if they don't it does work uh when things things like that it's your job to if you think you're right like daniel they no, davy crockett said if you think you're right uh, be sure you're right then go ahead well i was wasn't sure i was right but i should ask anyway because the judge may have agreed that i was right well that's what second peter is as a matter of evidence second peter is sure and second peter says forget all the baloney all the talk about people god said this and he told me that and hogwash the bible and that's it and you can take the bible and it's our responsibility to take that book and to apply it to our own lives by our own discernment in ways that would apply to nobody else because nobody else has the circumstances we have now roger i want to bring something up if i may unless you got something on the agenda well, you well, I, well while we're in all this court stuff there is something i want to talk about and i kind of <laughs> held it until you were with oh. us um yeah, yeah. so if you don't mind if i inject it here i don't know where you were going but it's on my mind otherwise i don't want to forget it because it really is interesting and i want to get your take on this do you know what you know i sent you a clip and i was talking one day on the air here with us about i got a man crush on this guy robert barnes and i sent you a little clip of him he's one of the high profile uh conservative attorneys in the country he's from chattanooga tennessee and he went through yale or one of one of those ivy league schools up there and he's he's a bulldog okay I mean, this guy, I, I watch his shows and stuff. He knows law inside out, okay? Mm-hmm. Anything that comes up, he said, well, this, this this happened, that happened. You know, he's really, really on top of it. So he's Alex Jones's attorney, on top of Trump's, mm-hmm. by the way. Mm-hmm. He handled a bunch of stuff for Trump. Um, do you know what they're doing to Alex Jones on these Sandy Hook trials? 
I heard about it. Tell me what you know, Roger. I'm they got they enlightened. they're coming. Well, what they're obviously trying to do is shut down Infowars. Okay, mm-hmm. it, it's a real problem for them, a big problem. All right, mm-hmm. and so after all, and I didn't follow Sandy Hook. I don't bite on their false flags and go spend my life chasing that minutia. You know, okay, it happened this, that, and the other. He got on the air. Well, they came back with damages on the families of the children that were killed, evidently. Okay, uh, I don't know if it's libel or what all they're going after mm-hmm. him for, but they've got two state court cases going on one in connecticut and one in texas all right Mm -hmm. and both of these judges found alex jones guilty before the trial Mm -hmm. okay they've they they have uh uh, going and i think the trials start next week one of them in texas starts next week Mm -hmm. okay that's why barnes is down there he's on the Infowars a lot because he's uh, in the area and they're dragging him in talk on the air Mm -hmm. and uh so what the judge and this came out from judges instructions you can't bring up the first amendment you can't bring up this i think the second amendment you have no free speech i mean they just lay they took everything away and they've already found him guilty and now they're going to have the trial and what it brought forth to me was that little uh, blurb out of alice in wonderland down at the back end of alice in wonderland when the queen and they're playing the croquet game and something happens and her statement is sentence now verdict later <laughs> and now they're they're trying to determine they're going to put it in front of a jury to try and determine how much he owes when he's already been found guilty and there hadn't been a trial Mm-hmm. That's in Connecticut and Texas going on simultaneously. Mm-hmm. I get it. I get it. That's what's happening. That's why this is the kind of thing those two sheriffs said the other day. Uh, that just to make an analogy between the FBI and the courts, they said, these sheriffs said, the FBI has lost all credibility. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to enforce any of their ideas. I'm not going to cooperate with them anymore. Stay out of my county. Ooh. It was a pretty open. I, I hadn't heard that. Where'd that come out of? Oh, I'll send you the link, Roger. People send me things, and I do a little research, try to keep up with it a little bit. But uh, no, that's the way it is, and that's why <clears throat> Jesus Christ said too. Uh, he when he said, "Judge not that you be not judged." That word translated "judge" there is "crino." Crino. Crino means to bring a lawsuit. In the Greco, the Greek-Roman world, the law of the city world, it means to bring a lawsuit, to bring an action in court. Well, what is he saying? He said, bring an action in court, and you'll have an action in court against you. And what he meant when he said that was this. Listen close. It's not that we're not to judge other people. As a matter of fact, you have a responsibility to do that, according to God. Yeah. You know, I look at other people, and I evaluate them. Everybody does. People evaluate me constantly it never stops it can't stop because that's what we do to protect ourselves i don't want to associate with people that are dangerous or uh, at all or dangerous to my family dangerous to me but uh, what jesus christ is saying there is true if you bring a lawsuit and that's what that means crino if you bring a lawsuit an action in court against somebody everything will be revealed if it takes its course everything Nothing is fair in there. And everything comes out, whether you want it to or not. And a lot of people are wise, and their lawyers will tell them, don't bring an action, don't bring a lawsuit, because if you do, it'll be made public, these things about you. And so they don't do it. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ is saying there. 
judge not that you be not judged. If you want to go to law, just remember there's a price to pay. Maybe you think it's important enough, and there are times when it is. I've done it. Other people have done it. You bring an action when there's nothing else you can do. But don't be litigious. No, find another way to deal with the problem if you possibly can. It'll cost you a lot of money, and you'll be embarrassed when it's over. And even if you win, okay. you may not get anything. Okay. Now, now this is a conclusion I've come to, Brent, is you don't want to dance with these people. Okay. If you're in the dance, they're more than likely going to win. You may have a slim chance on some technicality, but uh, but your chance is definitely stacked against you. Okay. Oh, what we point. do yeah. here is we change people and help people change their status and take them out of the jurisdictional nexus of the administrative agency where the vast majority of any charges come from. Okay, and they're only against residents and citizens of the United States. And when you file that paperwork and take yourself out of that class, you've done a preemptive strike. And the conclusion I've come to is that is about the only way to beat these bastards. See if you agree with me, Brent, here. Over all the years I've been following this stuff, 30 years now, um, I've seen some victories. You know, I remember the attorney from uh, Shreveport that was real big friends with uh, – uh, with Larry B. Kraft that died, and I can't remember his name right now, but he mm-hmm. won a case against the IRS, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an attorney, went into court skilled, and he knew what he was doing, and he won a case against the IRS. I can, I, I can hardly think of one case where our people have ever won a case in court on law. They're always winning cases on technicalities. You know, it's either it's either something that in the APA, they that Administrative Procedures Act, their rule book. It's something they didn't do right or they didn't do that they were supposed to do is generally where we win cases. Do you agree with that? Yeah, it's structural. It's never on the merits. It's structural. Some technicality. If there's a victory of any kind, and very seldom is there ever. Can you think? Can you think of any victories in law in our oh, patriot yeah. community? Oh, yeah. What about oh, yeah. Cheek? What about Cheek? Yeah, Cheek. That one. I know one personally that I was involved with very closely that uh, was acquitted a conspiracy against the United States. It was a, a tax case. Like you say, in a tax case, they'll accuse you of everything in the book except taxes. You know, that, <laughs> that's what they did to Al Capone. They, they got sure. him on income taxes, but the truth is that he was guilty of everything else under the book. Right. <laughs> with him. No, he, he was uh, pimping hookers and selling drugs and whoever who knows what anything to make a buck sure know? sure so they got him on income taxes but they couldn't get him on the stuff you know you know where he served that term don't you at florida wasn't it atlanta atlanta oh i said oh yeah hey so did uh eugene deb serve his 10 years at atlanta. Have, have you ever heard me tell my story about our, our atlanta guy there that went through a failure to file case Named Charlie Gray. Oh, this is is really a touching story, and it comes back to the central thing of what we do here. Charlie Gray was a student of John Nelson. I know you know who John Nelson was, is, and uh, he owned a big antique business there in Atlanta, and IRS came after him for failure to file. And Charlie was a little bitty guy, five foot four or five, very diminutive and a little bit, a little bit uh, uh, portly, and uh, he decided to do pro se on that, and. And uh, with John's help and instructions, he did a damn good job for somebody who's never gone through something like this in your in your green. It's quite an ordeal, okay? And so he even actually had three federal judges subpoenaed 
He had three federal judges on the stand. Mm-hmm. And he got one of the Jewish judges on there and started asking him, did you take the cold Nidre oath last year? <laughs> and, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I went up there for a couple of days uh, down the Russell building there in Atlanta, the federal building, and went up to the trial. A bunch of us were in there. But one day, one of the persons he had subpoenaed was the uh, district, district or regional, I think maybe district, district director IRS. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so it's a full courtroom. Jury's impaneled. There ain't a seat you can get in the courtroom. And Charlie's up there at the defense table handling his own case. And he's got the district director of the IRS on the stand. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the district director, I don't know what the questioning was. I don't remember all that. But I remember what happened because it was really revealing to me because I understood this even at that point. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, the you know, the those guys that get those little half glasses where they can mm-hmm. tilt their head down and look at mm-hmm. you over the glasses and, and, you know, be real serious, you know. Mm-hmm. And so Charlie asked him some question, and he pulls out, I think it was 6001, 60011, 6012, those three stat, uh, regs they come at you with all the time. And so the district director's on the stand, and he starts reading, he's got his glasses on, and he starts reading the statute in, in response to Charlie's question. Okay, Mm -hmm. and is any person yada 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 yada, and he lowers his head, and he looks over his glasses at Charlie, and he goes, "You look like a person to me," Mm -hmm. and buddy, you could have heard a pin drop in that courtroom. Okay, Mm -hmm. now. If Charlie would have known what I had been taught, and he should have by John Nelson, in all honesty, John and John, John Nelson and my John Benson were in the same group together out in Denver, okay? And so mm-hmm. if he would have known this legal background of person, Charlie's response was, Mr. District Director, in law, a person is an entity to whom the law ascribes rights and duties. I have no rights ascribed under the 14th Amendment and thereby owe no correlative duties, and I'm not that person Mm -hmm. okay if he'd known to say that and address that situation there but i've always thought that that moment right there that jury convicted him Mm -hmm. and he spent a year and a half in club fed where al capone was that's how i knew that you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so folks listen i tell you to learn these basics learn the damn basics that's where your freedom is, and that example of Charlie Gray is a perfect example. If Charlie would have said that and I was the U.S. attorney, I would have said, objection, judge. If he's going to testify, he has to be sworn. So yeah. that would be testimony. Now, he could have said that when he was cross-examined, and then he could have brought it, or when he was on direct examining himself. He could have given the questions, given the questions to the judge to ask him, since he didn't have a lawyer, and he could bring that out clearly. That would have been the way to do that. But there's a lot, lot to that. I guess I'm getting into detail. But the bottom line, the fundamentals are: what is a person, and, and for purposes of what? And um, a person, by the way, Roger, the word "person" is an old word that is uh, related to uh, the idea of an actor. But right. person came to mean in the Latin tongue everything about the man. The word person comprised not only his body, his expressions, his mind, but it comprised all of his belongings, who he is, what he does for a living. That's his personhood. Could, his could mind, I add his something will, there? His emotion. Could I Go add? Ahead. It's his legal personality. Yeah, it comes down to that, right? 
but it, it, it was a, it's a far stretching word that comprised more than just, well, here's who I am type thing. It's here's who I am and all that pertains there to right. personhood. And, um, so when you, the, the, now not to say that the law recognizes that Roger, I don't think that lawyers and judges, 99.9% of them ever make that distinction. Uh, you know, that, I maintain that if John Benson learned all this law and he didn't learn it out of law school, he learned it because he loved the law and he'd go back and read the old law. That's how I know all this stuff is because that's the guy that was my teacher. They don't teach it in law schools anymore for the most part. You know, yeah, I'm a, know yeah, John Benson, at one point, he called, and I don't know which one it was. It was one of the law schools in Utah. Okay, you know, John was a devout Mormon. Okay, and uh, he got the dean on the phone. And he, uh-huh. he got him, engaged him in a conversation. And he said, oh, I'm considering come, coming to law school. Got, oh, well, we'd love to have you, obviously. And they have that conversation. And John says, well, I'm particularly interested in the word person. Uh-huh. Okay. And the dean goes, oh, no problem. We teach that in a course. It's an elective course called jurisprudence. And John being John and very astute, his question was, when was the last time you taught it? Um, Six years ago. So six graduating classes went through that yaw school without being exposed to the meaning of the word person, which is virtually in every statute and regulation. All statutes and regulations are written for persons, peop, uh, play, uh, persons, actions, or things, right? Mm-hmm. Well, beyond that, the, uh, the course called jurisprudence is never required in any law school. Right. So no, not only... <laughs> Was it not taught in the jurisprudence course? It wouldn't have been uh, most 99%. Again, 99% of the students wouldn't take it. Most law school students want to go through law school, get their bar exam, and start making money, and they don't care how they do it. Exactly. That's what it always comes down. Jurisprudence doesn't matter. If you ask lawyers what is jurisprudence, there would hardly be any that could even tell you, give you a straight answer. That's like asking a lawyer what is justice. Uh, asking a lawyer what is the difference between the law of the land and the law of the city, which are the only two possibilities there are in the world. And they don't know. They No, they'll, they'll give you a pat answer that they heard somewhere or this popular opinion. Most people would say that our common law, our law of the land, most would say, well, that's case law. That's what the courts say. Well, that's, that's, that's bigger. That's only a small part of it, and that doesn't even uh, give you a definition you can work with. I think I told you, when I was in paralegal school, we had 10 different modules for six months going at night school, Uh okay? Yeah, you did. The only time common law was ever mentioned in the entire six months was that one sentence in our legal research module, and it said common law is case law. That's the only time it was mentioned in six months. It is true that for a lawyer going into court, he doesn't argue the statute. He argues the court's interpretation of the statute in particular instances. And the reason he does that, and the re- that's, the, that's our custom, and it's a hard custom. In other words, hard, it's not going to change, because that is part of our common law tradition, that the courts rely upon the pronouncements of the courts. And the legislature are separate and co-equal. The courts have no uh, responsibility to the legislative branch, and they have no responsibility to the executive branch. Their oath and their office to support and defend the law of the land. What's the law of the land? Well, one small slice of it that's very important is the Constitution of the United States. The law of the land, which is our common law, that's another name. 
for our common law is due process. Our common law is not a matter of do's and don'ts. It's not uh, you don't do this and do that. And all that legislation is not. But if legislation pertains to process, that's our common law. And it is not the what we should do. It is how we go about doing it, how we go about deciding who's guilty and who's innocent, how we go W-H-O-W, how we go about deciding who's liable and who isn't. That's our common law. And when the common law, our law of the land, that's what is called law of the land. Uh, When that's followed, then people get fairness and we get a fair fight. But the reason case law is important is because the courts rely on the courts. They do not rely on the legislature. Why? Because in common law government, the branches, the three branches of government, are separate but co-equal. They are utterly independent of each other. They can agree if they want and often do. But where they disagree, that's our common law at its best. Where the Supreme Court comes down and says, not only do we disagree with the president about Roe v. Wade, we disagree with uh, ourselves, in this case, we're overturning because we were wrong back there in 1973 when this case was decided. Not only were we wrong a little bit, we were wrong big in every way on Roe v. Wade. That's what the court said. But anyway, they, they follow. I'm getting back to this. The courts follow the courts. You can go to the courts and look up the cases on the statutes of frauds. Statutes of frauds, which were passed way back of Henry VIII. Every state in the country has a legislation. The legislature has passed statutes of fraud. They're all pretty much the same with variations. But if the courts decide opinions, opinion on the statute of frauds and write an opinion, you can read the entire opinion in most cases and never see the statute of frauds quoted because that legislation is now overlain with court decisions on particular instances being very precise about how it's to be applied that's what the courts do. They're, our common law tradition another feature of it. It is not legislation only. That's what the law of the city is, legislation only. Our common law is the courts deciding in individual instances right from wrong, given the facts of that particular case, which is like no other case. All these question. things are common law tradition. Question somebody said. Go ahead. Um. If it's based on other case law or uh, former cases or tort or whatever, um, but it's never been tried as a national, then how would the outcome be based if you're tried if you get in a court case as a national when there's no precedent uh, for that? Okay, okay, a court case from who and and, and does it, is it an agency brought indictment? that you're not un, no longer under the jurisdiction of, or is it a property crime which you are liable for under common law? So you got to get in there and give a little more specifics in your hypothetical, Ken. Well, uh, agreed. Um, well, what I believe you're asking is this. Let me take a stab at it. You're saying, well, if there's no precedent for it in the courts, how can they decide it? And here's how they do it. If it has not arisen before in the courts, this particular problem, then the courts have a duty to fashion a remedy. That's part of our common law tradition. That's called a case of first impression. Yeah. And the, the, the legislature has not spoken to everything, but the courts have a duty in our common law tradition to fashion a remedy. In the law of the city tradition, 
the legislation is so comprehensive that they think and say they've covered everything in every detail, leaving nothing but the court to do, the tribunal. I don't call them courts. The tribunal, all they got to do is parse the language of the legislation. Now, in our America today, uh, legislation is so prolific that the legislatures want to eliminate the courts. They want to exert their power. Uh, the administrative codes are so voluminous. They say they've covered every possible contingent set of facts that may have bobbed forth from the flux of human relationships. And that leaves nothing for the courts to do. But amazingly, it never the legislation never covers everything, although they want to. But that's the whole philosophy, philosophy behind the law of the city is the legis legislation, whether it be from a single man like a dictator or whether it be from a, 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 a covey of men like a legislature, uh, reduced to a single will, we declare what is right and wrong in every specific instance that could possibly arise. That's legislation. That's falsity. It cannot happen. It has never happened. There are situations that arise among men that nobody ever saw before. It keeps happening. Well, for example, the whole thing about contracts and emails and what constitutes acceptance and offer and how to sign over the email uh, by electronically, what constitutes a signature? Those things that con had, uh, had in Roman law or common law, had, Roman law, the law of the city, had never been faced before. Now we're faced, and our courts are faced with things legislation does not cover. That's the way it always is. It always. That's why our con only our common law tradition offers freedom, because freedom only can occur in individual instances. There is no such thing as the freedom of a corporate group of persons. No, freedom is an individual matter. Justice is an individual matter. And freedom, therefore, when it comes to the government, comes down to an individual court case, as we say, the specific instances. That's where liberty is. That's where freedom is found. And that's where it's experienced. That's where a common law tradition is so important. It is the way we view life and reality. And without that, we will not have freedom. I'd like to, Roger, address... Some of these, if I may, if it's all right, unless you go to the things, uh, some of these comments that are made here, just maybe briefly. Well, I, I, I did want to say something that I think yeah. is really important here, and, and keep that because I do want you to do that. Um, in all my research that went into the book, one of my go-to references was a book I acquired very early on, 30 years ago when I started looking into this because I kept seeing some speeches and this guy William T. McFadden's name pop up. I didn't know who he was. Some of you may not. One of the greatest statesmen that's ever sat in the House of Representatives, I can tell you that. Okay, And it was in a book called 31, The 31 Collective Speeches of Louis T. McFadden. Have you ever seen that book, Brent? Uh-huh. Well, somebody went through the federal, the congressional record and pulled out between 1931 and 1933, very pivotal time. He, and this guy was a former banker. He was from Pennsylvania. He'd started at a bank when he was young, emptying trash cans and worked his way up to the president of the bank. He decided to run for Congress. And so when he was elected in the, uh, I think it was around uh, World War II time, maybe a little after, uh, for the first time because of his background at Evidently, at that point, the House of Representatives had a House Banking Committee. They don't have it anymore, okay, probably because of him, really. And uh, he, they elected him as chairman of the Banking Committee, which a position he held until they killed him on the fourth attempt in 33, okay? 
he was a thorn in their side if you've never because he was a banker he knew exactly what was going on with all these mechanizations in that time period the forming of the bis bank of international settlements all this stuff was covered thoroughly in his speeches on the floor and i was so green i read all those but i was so green most of it went over my head really at that point and because uh, it's a very complex stuff obviously and i included a number of his quotes in my book and so one day i'm reading in there uh one of the quotes and it keeps talking about this uh speech that was given to the american association of colleges and law schools in 1933 have you ever heard this story brent have I ever, we ever talked about this yeah, before? Yeah, you've told it, but go ahead. Oh, okay. So uh, it, it talks about that year, 1933, the American, uh, the umbrella organization over all the colleges and law schools in the country, the American Association of Colleges and Law Schools, okay? They moved their annual uh-huh. convention that year to Chicago, Illinois on New Year's Eve. Uh-huh. Now, I wrote, I've, they're online, you can go find them. I wrote them on email years ago, and I said, could you tell me the other times in your history when you've had a convention on New Year's Eve? Well, obviously, I never got a response, okay? And uh, the reason they did that was so that this little Jew named Jerome Frank, who was the legal counsel for the Department of Agriculture, which is the gateway they used to drive all these communists into the, govern- into the government. Harry Dexter White, the guy that founded the UN, I can't think of his name. Anyway, all those guys came in through the Department of Agriculture. So obviously that's when they took over and controlled real early. Okay, And this guy, giving a speech to the American Association of College and Law School, was the lead counsel for the Department of Agriculture. And the name of the speech and the title of the speech, and that's what McFadden was talking about in this excerpt, was called Experimental Jurisprudence and the New Deal. So they moved the Association of Colleges and Law School Convention to New Year's Eve in Chicago so this Jew could come in here because they got to tell you what they're doing, right, and give this speech. Well, I, I one of our guys found it online, and I was doing shows with Al Addis back at that time, and I sent it to Al, and I'll never forget the response he gave me. He said, Roger, that's the most damning government document I've ever read, That that speech. Okay, so my point here, if you don't think these bastards control the curriculum of law schools, you're wrong. And they've been doing it for about 100 years or more. And that's why lawyers don't know this stuff. So, okay, I'm finished, Brent. <laughs> that was important, I suppose. I, yeah, that, about McFadden. McFadden just a guy that figured it out. He didn't get educated on it, but he worked in enough well he's the one there's two times that i've seen in everything that i've looked over over all these years where government judges got it mcfadden got it because one of his comments in one of his speeches was they're building a machiavellian feudal system those are his words oh mcfadden the other thing we don't want to forget mcfadden is dead yeah oh yeah they killed him on the fourth attempt they poisoned him yeah yeah it did. So it, it takes more than just saying the truth to stay alive. You, you got to say it and you got to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And that's what Jesus Christ admonishes us to do. And not speaking is important. Not speaking at the times God doesn't want you to speak. But 
I'm gonna now the other t- the other one. Let me bring out the other one. That's one of them. The other one is even more poignant. I guess maybe the word is the is the the uh, the not the opinion, but the the. Uh, the, the other opinion it's not the opinion it's the dissent that's the word i'm looking for the dissent in u.s versus wong kim ark the very important case from the late 1890s that laid the superstructure so all of us can participate in this slave deal because before that it was strictly for blacks okay Wong Kim Ark is the case they you Wong. A Wong Kim Ark is obviously, well, he may be part black, but he ain't all black. He's Chinese. Okay. And so in that case, they applied the 14th Amendment to everybody, not just blacks. That's their, so they let, they set the superstructure for what they're going to do later. Okay. And in that dissent, written by the Chief Justice Fuller of the Supreme Court for many years. He's evidently a great Supreme Court justice. But I find recently, guess who else joined him in that dissent? And I didn't know this. You know, Brent? John Harlan, the great dissenter. Okay. And I went back and did a little research on Fuller. And Fuller was from Maine, and he was a real estate attorney, moved to Chicago for his practice. So that's how he, he was familiar with the feudal system. Okay, and they came out in that dissent. I'm going to paraphrase here. Probably not very good. If the opinion follows the rule, he's talking about the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was the legislation that went into the 14th Amendment. He said it brought in the English. We've read it on the air before because you and I have talked about it. It brought in the English variety of servitude for the first time in this country. It's the relationship between a liege man and his liege lord. It is not affected by time or space and is absolute and unbending. And we were bringing it in under the 14th Amendment and their comment, just as England was getting rid of its inconvenience. Now, there's both two great Supreme Court justices, John Harlan, the great dissenter, and this chief justice for over 10 years, Chief Justice Fuller, and that's their dissent. And those are the only two times I've seen anybody identify ahead of time what these guys were doing. Mm-hmm. No, and, and, and of course, uh, uh, John Harlan's uh, uh, opinion in Downs v. Bidwell, which if y'all have never seen that, talks about well, there's what we see at the bar is two forms of government here: one under our Constitution, the other the way the European monarchies are run. So he saw it as they were setting it all up. See, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's the courts making their declaration, their opinion. It's called an opinion for a reason their opinion of how the law applies in a particular case. But uh, the power of those opinions over the minds of people in the country is uh, overwhelming. You know, the justices of the courts, and all of them, the judges, they don't have any power to enforce what they say beyond the immediate case they have. That They have in the power of equity. They can tell the U.S. Marshals to do this or that to the people that, they have, that have come before the court and have, the court has jurisdiction over their matter subject matter jurisdiction and personal but they have no power to enforce their decisions anywhere else and uh, but their power is greater the power of the pen has come to like look at roe v wade there was nothing in our law that said what roe v wade said there was no precedent in the courts there was no even one step inferences you could make it it wasn't mentioned abortion 
the Constitution of the United States gives no jurisdiction, doesn't even mention abortion. Right. The federal government doesn't have any jurisdiction over family affairs. Now, to press home the point that our common law is, is due process, what is due process? It is the process that is due and owing to all concern in any given situation. There's nothing in our in our Constitution of the United States about bank robbery, felony, uh, car hijacking, uh, contract law, except uh, obligation of contract. It talks about that for the states, but that's very limited. But there's no substance, what we call substantive law. Our Constitution has none. What our Constitution does primarily is tells us how, H-O-W, our government is to run, how in the relationship between the three branches, how we are to choose the president of the United States, how we are to choose senators and representatives. It has nothing to do with state government. doesn't say anything about child custody law or family law. doesn't say anything about the law of bailment, the law of tort, <clears throat> the law of uh, any felonies. Really. It doesn't say anything about felonies except it mentions four kinds of potential crimes, but it doesn't say anything about them. So there's very limited jurisdiction in the Constitution of the United States, but it is the law of the land as far as the, the procedure of how this general government in Washington, D.C. is supposed to run. It's what, that's why it says it is the law of the land. Law really? of the land lifted from Magna Carta means process, how we are to do things. Back to you, Roger. You Brent, let me, yes, I want to ask you a question. Do you know when the laws of federal laws of criminal and civil procedure were instituted? Wasn't it in the thirties after the system changed to overcome well, no, this? No, no, here's what ha- I, I, and pe- Patriots say it that way. And that's not the proper way to say it. Okay. There has always been laws of procedure, right? And they've been fixed and they've been court pronounced laws. That's why lawyers say, Oh, that's, uh, judge-made law. That's what the common law is. Well, that's just one small part of our common law. The legislature c- can pronounce common law procedures too, and if they're lawful, well, they're lawful. Now, the Congress, of course, in the 1930s, codified the common law that had been around for for centuries in our common law tradition of, of procedure. Most of it was pretty much just what the common law said. Some of it changed and was not good. Remember, our common law is not the Bible. Our Constitution, contrary to the Mormons, is not the Bible. The Mormons say that the Constitution of the United States is on equal dignity with the Bible. That's stupidity. And it's heresy, by the way. No, no, that's not the bad word, heresy. It is false doctrine. And to accept that is to accept the doctrines of demons. It's not that the Constitution is not right substantially. But to accept it's on equal dignity with the Bible is a doctrine of demons. Why? Because it equates the observations of men with the pronouncements of the Spirit of God. That's wrong. The Bible says, point blank, don't do that. It says it in many places, as a matter mm-hmm. of fact. And we, we need to pronounce that because that is the way, as nice as it sounds, that's the way evil ideas creep into our culture and in, and and whittle away at the word of God because the word of God is the final rule in all of this and faith and practice and life. The laws of nature, that's our common law, our observations of what fairness has to be and the laws of nature's God. That's the Bible. And those two phrases from our declaration of 76 give us the two fundamentals of our law as Americans. Our common law is the nexus that puts the rubber of the Bible to the road. 
Our common law is the nexus that puts the rubber of the Bible to the road. The Ten Commandments are, have nothing to do with process, nothing. They just tell you what the standards are. And only God has authority and jurisdiction to pronounce the outcome standards for mankind. And the Ten Commandments are a chief expression of those outcome standards. In the end of it all, no matter what the process is, don't violate these standards. But the process, that's up to us in individual instances to make sure everything is fair. He has given us that jurisdiction. We don't have jurisdiction to pronounce right from wrong. We have jurisdiction to pronounce the process. That's why the Bible says, do not be afraid. It says this to the jurors and judges. Do not be afraid of the faces of any man, whether he be rich or whether he be poor. Do not be favorite and practice favoritism to the poor man. Do not practice favoritism to the rich man, but follow my process. And then he says this, because the judgment is mine. The outcome is mine, not yours. All you've got to do is cookbook the process that's fair. That's all you got to do. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about process, but it doesn't say everything. And it can't. It, does. it says, well, here's some fundamentals. For example, no material fact can be established unless at least two eyewitnesses or ear witnesses to the fact uh, testify to it, at least two, and no more than three. That's our common law tradition, too. You can have more than three, but the Bible says, no, don't have more than three. That's where our common law is wrong. We allow more than three, but it doesn't do you much good, and it probably hurts you. But the Bible's clear on that particular process. It says uh, at least two, but no more than three. By the way, let me interrupt. That's why I tell you if you don't want to notarize your document, use two witnesses. Well, yeah, use two witnesses anyway. Notarization doesn't. All notarization does, it's required in some cases, nothing wrong with it, but all that does is uh, gives an official proclamation. Yeah, this is the person right. whose name appears here. It does, has nothing to do with the document. You know what we're getting notaries lately? It, I've had a couple of instances of notaries. I think one of them was in Colorado. Somebody took a, their their affidavit to the notary. And notary says, "Oh, I can't. I can't notarize this. You've got to take it to the courthouse to be notarized." Oh, yeah. Notaries don't have a clue what they're doing, Roger. It's stupid. I mean, all they do is they get an ID. They got a piece of paper. It isn't up to them at all what's on the piece of paper. It's that the guy that's signing it is the guy on the ID. That's their job. That's their job. But some legislation now, Roger, in some states makes it their business to know what the document is unfortunately oh. well you know that's, in california our common law too. in, in california which you're familiar with of course uh they've got they're different from every other state in the country you got to have something with an affid with a notary on a separate piece of paper do you know oh, all yeah. about this yeah. oh yeah they take the notary very serious in california unlike other states too serious almost but yeah they take it serious and if you're a notary and you mess up uh, you can be held liable on a lot of stuff. And the notaries keep really persnickety records, persnickety records. And they make a lot of money, by the way. They charge a lot of money for what they do because the responsibility is heightened in California. That's huh. true. Well, I just yeah. know I don't I don't remember any other state where this got to be done on a separate seat, sheet of paper. And I never knew that until some of our California folks went to get their stuff notarized and came back to me with that. And I'm going, What? Yeah. Well, it's been very, very, uh, they've taken it serious in California for decades, but just within the last two decades, this extra requirement has come up and, and they're, uh, very careful about the way they use notaries, but two witnesses is good. 
two witnesses good if you're going to establish for instance a trust document or a contract uh sign it two witnesses that actually saw you sign that's binding uh with a will or if you have two witnesses that um watch you sign a will or a trust and there is no no obstruction in the line of sight between you and the person signing and then you have a good solid document and as far as i know every state there are differences in different states as to what constitutes a will but if you have two witnesses with no obstruction in line of sight as you sign between the witnesses in your hand then you've got a a valid document the notary is not required but doesn't hurt to get it that's the other side of it um, we've had a good discussion today. I, I love talking about all this law stuff, and I'm sure some of your newer people are getting a drink out of a fire hydrant here today. Um, but we got about 20 minutes left, Brent, and I didn't want to deprive the, the audience of anything they might want to ask. Ken, I wanted to address something you said on your comments earlier, and I didn't know this had it not been for Brent, uh, and this, uh, star- uh, this concept called stare decisis, which means the issue's already been decided. And in our R.V. Wade is the, I think you said, Brent, the only case in the history of the Supreme Court where not one single uh, previous case was cited in the decision. Oh, I won't, I won't do the, I didn't do the research and don't know that, but I'll bet it's true. I do know, and if you can read this recent case, that the opinion that the Supreme Court handed down and they say things like that, boy, it's, uh, it's shocking what they say. Go read that case. You can pull it up on the internet. But yeah, they say there's no basis for what the, what the court did in Roe v. Wade. It's not mentioned in the Constitution. There's no jurisdiction for us to even say anything about it. Why don't you tell the story about when you and your buddy in law school got to go see Judge Blackman and his wife? Well, they bring people into law school to speak sometimes that were well-known lawyers. Ken Starr came. He was Attorney General of the United States, and we got to talk with him a little bit. He's an interesting character. And then... uh, Attorney General of the United States, his name was, uh, well, he wasn't Attorney General then. He became Attorney General later. That was Ashcroft. And then, uh, but uh, Blackman was, um, the he's the author of Roe v. Wade in 1973. And when uh, I was in school, he came to speak. And when he got there, he requested a private meeting with the students, no professors allowed. And I assume the reason he did that was so that the students would not be embarrassed or hesitant to ask questions in front of the professors and um, not many people went Uh, oh enough went but i was surprised not with when you have those people come in and speak the law students are so overwhelmed with trying to keep up that they don't stop to do anything else but i went to the meeting there were enough of us there i suppose my buddy was there dave i won't give his last name he became a state legislator later but he had gotten out of the marine corps and I was prior service, and we were friends, and uh, we went to the meeting. We were standing outside of the little auditorium there on campus where he requested this meeting where it could be, the doors could be closed and nobody could come in and all. The little stage up there, and he stood on the stage and had a microphone down by the edge of the stage and a podium back behind him, a distance, a short distance between the microphone and the podium. And he had two, by the way, this is a, a side note, a footnote to the story, had two uh, armed agents on both sides of the little platform up there that were carrying uh, automatic pistols. I remember that. 
you could see them under their coats. Well, <laughs> and uh, probably like most of those guys, they got horribly drunk the night before and were only about half there. But uh, they were there, and and uh, we were standing outside. And before we were the doors opened, we were allowed to go in. There was a, a white-haired fellow there that was pontificating. Had a he was an older man. Had a group of students, men around him, and and I was standing at the edge with Dave, and I heard this uh, this older fellow say, "You boys." better get in there and ask this Supreme Court justice a question because if you, any of you, ever see a Supreme Court justice again, he'll be asking you the questions. And this, is the only, this is the only chance you have to ask him a question. Well, I found out later, I found out later it was Senator Eagleton. Senator Eagleton, who had been the vice president running mate with uh, McGovern. Right. And was that right. 68? It was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. 72. No, McGovern was 72, ran for U.S. president. He was the Democrat nomination. Well, Eagleton had ran with him. Well, then later, Eagleton uh, wound up in an insane asylum. I found this out. I vaguely remember the guy, and I vaguely remember the story, but he wound up in an insane asylum. I don't know why, what happened. I'd have to go read about it. But then he came out, and, and he was there that day for some reason. I don't remember. Oh, he was from, from there. That's what it is, I think. Well, at any rate, uh, he was going to be on the panel discussion later. Well, I went in, uh, and Dave was with me, and Dave had a question he wanted to ask the justice. And so the students formed a little little line there with a mic in the middle of the, the aisle, you know. That's the way they'd do it. And they'd ask a question, uh, and the justice would field the question. I remember they were asking questions about, Indian tribe and some of the big cases that had come down about peyote and stuff like that. And came Dave's term and Dern and Dave uh, said, well, thank you, Justice Blackman, et cetera. Uh, but he said, if Roe v. Wade were to be decided today, given the composition of the Supreme Court of the United States, do you think it would come down the same? Nice question. And respectfully put. Just wanted his opinion. Well, Justice Blackman had come to the edge of the stage, the platform, and leaned over, and he'd listen. Then he'd shuffle back to the podium where there was another mic, and he'd start talking. Well, he shuffled back. I think I told this story a couple of weeks ago. Those that you, of you that have heard it, please be patient, and maybe there's somebody here that hasn't heard it. He shuffled back the mic, and he said, well, I know you probably wonder why I, why I come down to the edge of the podium and lean over and listen, and shuffled back to the mic, and he said, the reason I do that, so it gives me a little time to think of an answer. And, of course, that everybody giggled. And then he started talking about Roe v. Wade, and he was very factual. Well, we did this and that, and when the case came down, and here's what happened. And he walked, talked and talked, and as he talked, he slowly began to pick up steam. And uh, he got more animated, and he got more forceful, and he got real forceful about women's rights, and he said, we got to do something. He ended with his, these words. We got to do something in this country to make sure that women are equal with men. That was his final words. Women are equal with men. Well, women ain't equal with men. And by the way, men ain't equal with women. Why? Yeah, right. Because we're different sexes. It's apples and oranges. Oh, we're all part of mankind. But equality is quite another matter. Equality, if everybody was truly equal in the sense he's talking about, and the sense Roe v. Wade was supposed to try to get, well, then life would be ugly and boring. It'd be, bo it'd be a boring world. 
Yeah, and that's what we're seeing now, by the way. I, everywhere I look, I see all these women that think they're men, and they're trying to do what men do, and then you got the ones that dress like men, act like men, and marry women, or think they're married to women. And all the foolishness I see going on, and all the people with tattoos all over their bodies oh. goes with this, by the way. Oh. And all of that goes together to make everybody the same, and I don't like it. I like people to be themselves. We're unique. Ooh. We need to be yeah. unique. Sure, and that's what brings power to our culture. You go to these other pagan cultures, they've been doing that for centuries. That's why they live in filth, and they have no power. Where men and women know their positions, know who they are, know what they're good at, and they pursue it with a heart that God gave them to pursue it, that's where the power is. Women and men both forfeit their power when they mix those together and and, and try to be more effeminate, try to be You more know, that effeminate. was Phyllis Schlafly's deal right there on feminism. Yeah. Why are women giving away their power? Oh, yeah, and they did. They, they had no question. Or they have. They are. But don't do that, gals. You're, you're the most powerful of the two sexes. The female of the species is more deadly than the male. Yes. <laughs> yes. She recognizes her femininity and holds on to it for her very life. And men will have fulfilled lives if they hang on to their masculinity. Reading. Reading now, I've got a few minutes, the autobiography of Justice Thomas. He makes the point there, his granddad raised him. Right. And down there off the coast, the Going Channel Islands. Dirt, no white dirt floors. You're poor. His grandfather, who raised him, would not take public assistance. Would not. Never did. And, of course, uh, Justice Thomas, Clarence, and asked, he called him daddy because he's the one who raised him, his granddad. And he said, uh, why, why not? Because he was in these discussions at school with other people of color. And they were saying, what's the matter with you, Clarence? You know, don't, aren't you mad about the way the white man's treated us? And he said, no, I'm not mad about it. I never have been. I'm still not mad about it. But I think we can do better. And, of course, he did, and they didn't. He, they tried to catch him up in the madness of race baiting and hatred. Right. And he said, and look, and look at him now. But he said his uh, granddaddy, when Lindy Johnson came out with all the welfare programs and said he'd get the, use the N-word. We'll get these, and he used that N-word. We'll get him voting for de voting Democrat for the next 200 years. I heard the recording of him saying it to the pre the head of the, uh, the Democrat Party on the telephone. It used to be on the Internet. They took it off. It was very popular. That's what Democrats really think about people that are not the same color as they are. They hate them. They want to use them politically and prostitute them. Well, anyway, Clarence, why don't, why don't you take um, these? Well, you're entitled to them. And he was poor. He could have taken him. Plus, he was black. And I don't mean brown. I mean black. That family was black, like Clarence is. And uh, for good reason. That goes along with geography and history. But uh, his granddad said to him, because if I take any welfare, it will take my manhood. That's what he said. Clarence makes a big point about yeah. that in his autobiography. You want to know why Clarence Thomas is the man he is today? is because of that stuff right there. Yeah, and, take, and it will take your manhood, friends. Why? Because you become dependent upon man instead of dependent upon who? The God that made you. You know, true independence of man means you depend entirely. You trust entirely, no exceptions, only on the God that made you. No, you don't trust your friends. You don't trust your wife. You don't trust your husband, ultimately. No, you tr don't trust yourself. 
Paul the Apostle says, I don't trust what you think about me to the Corinthians, and I don't even trust what I think about myself. I trust the God that made me. And all trust is for your maker and nobody else. And the more you trust on him, the more dependent you are on him, the more independent you will appear to the rest of the pagan world, and the more power you will have. Whatever you attach yourself to in ultimate trust, the power of that person, make sure it's not an idol, not some statue of Mary, not some statue of a saint. Don't be praying to those creatures. They are creatures, created things. No, pray to the God of all creation. Not the church, not the Pope, not the Mormon church, not the Roman church, not any church organization, Presbyterian, Baptist, no. Like Wycliffe said, under the open vault of heaven, you worship God by the written word he gave you. That's how you do it, and that's what will bring confidence in your God, not in yourself, in your God, which is the only true lawgiver, the only final arbiter of right and wrong, from whose decision there is no appeal. And if you depend, trust, that's what trust is, depending on him. Does that mean, you know, I don't, don't trust my wife, don't trust my husband? No, don't. You're loyal to your husband. You're loyal to your wife. You're loyal to those that God has given you in commitment of relationship. But you tell your wife, husbands, and you tell your husband's wife, and, wife, and you tell your children, parents, trust in God and trust him that he will use me for your benefit. That's the trust we need to encourage, and that's where stability comes from. Brent, before we run out of time, there's another law situation I want to throw up while we're on this topic today. It's pretty interesting. It's out of Europe. I forget whether it's Norway or Sweden. I saw this gal interviewed the other day. They're indicting her for a three-year prison term, and she is a devout extreme feminist. I heard her say it out of her own mouth, so here's a liberal, okay? And she made two statements that have got her all in all this trouble. Have you heard this? Okay. Her first statement was, men can't be lesbians. And her second statement was, men can't have babies. And they're coming after her and going to try and throw her in jail for three years for saying that. What country is she in? Nor- Norway or Sweden, I forgot, one of the two. That's surprising because there's left-wing wackos you can get up there. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I don't, you don't have any freedom of speech in Norway or Sweden. Um, I don't understand. I'll have to look that up. I don't get what's it just on, It just but. happened last within the last 10 days. It's a pretty yeah. new story, but Freedom of speech is part of our common law tradition. And by the way, it only pertains to government. It only pertains to government. If I say on this show, as I have said before, we're not going to talk about that anymore. And you're not going to say the things you're saying. Well, I'm not violating the First Amendment. No, the First Amendment, freedom of speech and our common law tradition and our Constitution is a written principles of our common law tradition, our law of the land. Uh, that only applies to the government saying what you can't say. It doesn't apply to anybody else. If you're in my home or I, you're, I'm in your home and you say to me, I don't want to talk about it. And if you continue to talk about it, you're out of here. Well, that's good law. You're out of here, but not with the government. The government doesn't have that authority. The government cannot restrict your speech lawfully. That's the point. That's the point. And even in court, I see it happen. It shouldn't happen. Uh, we should say what we think is important, what God has given us. Not that we are to speak without responsibility. We have responsibility toward God to speak when he wants us to speak, to say what he wants us to say, and to shut our blasted mouths when He, we believe in our discerning discerning ability that he's given us 
we believe we should shut our mouths, we should shut our mouths. If we don't, and it's God want what it's what God wants, well then we're gonna suffer the consequences. Well, Brent, you need to open we your mouth here. Our you need to open your mouth here a little bit more here at the end of the show and tell people how they can get more Brent winners. Go to thank you, Roger. Go to commonlawyer.com, www.commonlawyer.com, and you can you can hear us on Saturdays and Sundays on Patriot Soapbox on Saturdays, and you can find the times there. All you got to do is click on the link provided at the website, and we're going through the Book of Romans. The Book of Romans, the unpacking of the gospel of God. That's what he says there, and uh, answers all the questions that folk have toward me that they try to bruise me with. He answers all of them in Romans, and we're getting that chapter nine where he reaches the reaches the pinnacle of hitting those ultimate questions of human existence and of the sovereignty of God, the election of God, the predestination of God. And he, he closes the loopholes of the criticisms of those doctrines, closes them entirely. Uh, we're going to get there. But on Sundays then, Patriot Soapbox, we're go- going clause by clause, blow by blow through the book of Genesis. And Roger then comes on with Thumper. Uh, we call him Thumper. Uh, right after we have church on Sundays on Patriot Soapbox. Um, and then also, Roger and I are here on this show. And then uh, you can it, you can hear me at other places and uh, other outlets, and it's on the website. If you believe, if you believe that you're getting anything about what I say or what Roger says too, of course. But if you support what we do, we don't get paid to do this. The way you support me is you go to the website and you say, hey, I want to donate this much money, will you, uh, and, you, and we will send you the book of your choice in appreciation for your donation. We don't want you to just donate and not get more. We want you to get more. The idea is to get the word out. And you can see there how that works, and there are several books there. Uh, chief among them is uh, Excellence of the Common Law, Comparative Law Text, Comparing the Law of the Land and the Law of the City, our common law with the Code of Justinian, the Law of the City, on every continent and in every age, 958 pages, you can learn what our common law is. By learning what the law of the city is, it's the opposite. And that's the the object of that book. And also, a common lawyer translates and annotates the Bible from the original tongues. I call it the good book, uncooked. The Bible translated from the original tongues, over 15,000 footnotes. I don't want to deliver it uh, uncooked, or I want to deliver it raw. In other words, uncooked. Raw, uncooked, just the way I got it in the original tongues, and that's the object of that Bible translation, over 15,000 footnotes, 150 extended appendices explaining why I've translated the way I did, and other matters uh, that we've themed throughout the book. Go to commonlawyer.com.